What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I sat down with Harris Kupperman behind the Adventures in Capitalism blog and a hedge fund manager. It was a very interesting discussion. I really enjoyed this perspective as it, as it made me think critically about Bitcoin's place in the world a little bit more. Very heavy on energy, very heavy on supply chains. Very heavy on government incompetence. I think you guys are going to like it. This rip was brought to you by good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App's up with you. Stack sats, send sats. Receive sats and sell sats if you so please. Sats. Price is going up. Better get them while you still can. Get them on the cheap. Get them on the cheap. Cash App makes it very easy. You can DCA in the sats. You can buy just sporadically. You're just like, I want to buy some sats. Cash App makes that easy. Cash App can also be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers. You get a debit card. It's incredible. I used that this morning. I got coffee. I'm looking at my coffee now that I bought using my, my Cash App card. If you haven't downloaded the app yet, make sure you use the code StackingSats, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10. And $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. <laughs> Owls Lacrosse. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to leverage Bitcoin's native properties to bring you collaborative custody. We're here to talk about their Volt product, specifically their white glove concierge service that they're offering. Their Volt product is a two or three multi-sig wallet of which you hold two keys, Unchained holds uh, a key, and so you can always move your sats in and out of this multi-sig Volt since you have two keys. However, if you're ever in a pinch and you need uh, Unchained to be there to be that second in the two or three signature, they are there for you, all right? And the reason for the vault is to eliminate single points of failure. You don't want to have all your sats on an exchange. Uh, they're uh, a long history of exchanges getting hacked and getting sats stolen and, and users being shit out of luck. Uh, maybe regulations get tougher and they just don't let you move it off exchange. You want to make sure that you have custody of your coins. Unchained with this vault product offers collaborative custody. Um, so they're going to have multiple video calls with you with this concierge service. They're going to get you comfortable with multi-sig, comfortable with the Vault product. They're going to send you hardware wallets, and then they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into the Vault once it's all set up. Uh, this is a package deal. If you tell them the TFTC sent you, you're going to get 50 bucks off. Um, if you just want to learn about it, you don't really want to pay for the whole package up front. Uh, they're doing free one-on-one consultations. They'll walk you through it. On top of that, they have their blog. They have other products. They're doing incredible things. Go check them out at Unchained.com. Unchained.com. This was also brought to you by good friends at Compass Mining. Compass Mining is here to get more individuals into the mining game. They want more individual ownership of hash rate. This is very admirable to strive for because it helps distribute the mining layer of Bitcoin. More individuals having ownership over hash rate means it's harder to shut down the Bitcoin network. So you go to CompassMining.io. You pick a miner. Uh, you can have it sent to your home. They're they're offering at-home mining consultations. So they have a mine-at-home team where if you buy the miner, you get it sent to your, your house, your apartment, wherever you may be, plugging it in. Uh, they're going to be there to help you figure out the electrical infrastructure, what you need to get set up. They're going to help you get set up with a pool and point your hash rate at that pool and then eventually get those sets streamed to a wallet of your choice. Uh, if you don't want to do at-home mining, they also have partnerships with Hosting facilities that have competitive electricity costs. So you can pick a, a hosting facility. You buy your miner. You pick a hosting facility. Compass is going to get that miner. Send it to that hosting facility. 
plug it in, and then you're going to get your sat stream to a lot of your choice. So go check out everything they're doing at compassmining.io. We have a special link in the show notes if you want to support the show. You can use that as well. This trip, last but not least, was brought to you by good friends at Brains. Brains. There's a team behind Slush Bowl, the oldest mining pool in the world. They've mined over 1.25 million Bitcoins. What else have they done? And they had a big update earlier this year that makes uh, reward splitting and sub accounts a lot easier. Uh, they have payment thresholds as well. You can wait till you stack uh, like a million sats and then you can get paid out. It's a beautiful thing. And Brains, Brains OS Plus firmware, is an auto-tuning firmware that helps you get more hash out of your ASICs and thus you get more sats from your ASICs. They find where the higher frequency chips or the, the higher frequency chips on the hash boards are and they focus the electricity there and they're going to get you more and more sats for that hash. Uh, it's available for a bunch of models of miners, uh, predominantly Bitmain. They're working on what's minor. They've got it in beta. They're testing it. They're running it in, in the offices. They also got an S19 uh, brains out and working in, in a private beta with some of their users. Um, they're also hiring. If you're a Rust developer, system admin, you've worked with hardware in the past, they're looking for you, okay? And they're a Bitcoin-only focused company. They've been doing great things. They've stayed true to Bitcoin throughout the history of their existence. Uh, and they're working on great open source protocols as well, like Stratum B2, which would help further distribute the mining pool layer. Uh, and they've got a shit ton of quality content on their sites. Brains with two eyes, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. Uh, you can follow them at brains underscore systems as well. You go to the website, you're going to find the Brains OS Plus firmware. You can learn about Slush Pool. They've got mining profitability calculators. They've got content that goes deep into diving. They've got threads on their Twitter account that goes deep into mining. I just said deep into diving. That was funny. Deep into mining. That's what I meant to say. So go check all this out at brains.com. B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. If you're running an ASIC that is uh, able to have the Brains OS Plus firmware download it on it and you're not using it you're leaving sats on the table don't do that use brains os plus firmware enjoy freaks you've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free if you talk about a fed just gone nuts all all the central banks going nuts so it's all acting like safe haven I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bet here for an episode I'm very excited about. Uh, we're here to talk about ESG. I know we've talked about it a lot, and I know it infuriates some of you a lot because you you conflate uh, my hatred for ESG with with a hatred for an environment that doesn't exist. I'm sitting down with Harris Kupperman, uh, more famously known as Cuppy on Twitter. Cuppy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, uh, like I was saying, I appreciate you. You were, I said, a gentleman of your stature coming out against ESG um, very aggressively. You said, oh, I'm not a man of stature, but it, for some reason or another, people look at hedge fund managers and they, they really hold them up on this pedestal and, and take their words uh, very seriously. And so to see a hedge fund manager like yourself coming out in your blog, Adventures in Capitalism, recently last month, and, and 
attempt to make markets aware of the fact that ESG may uh, be the next Lehman moment was something that I was very excited uh, to see. I believe I wrote about it in my newsletter. I reached out to you via DMs, and now we're here talking. Uh, and I think we should just jump into the topic at large. You think ESG is going to be a potential Lehman moment for markets? Why is that? Well, let, let's start by saying I'm all for the environment. I want to make things better. But um, you know, if they're going to turn off the carbon economy without building the green economy. It's kind of dumb. You know, you have to do this thing in a like organized way. You can't just turn off the carbon economy. But what we've seen is when you turn off the carbon economy, things go all haywire. And I mean, just look what's happened in the UK, because they're a few years ahead of the plan in the US. Um, you know, the power prices are spiking. We've had uh, multiple uh, consumer services, uh, you know, retailers of electricity going bankrupt. You're seeing, you know, factories closing. I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff is happening and it's only October, you know, imagine when it gets cold. Um, and so it's just creating this giant mess. You know, you're seeing, uh, you know, also to financial aspects of it, because, you know, the financial markets usually respond first, but eventually there's going to be human suffering because most people kind of expect it to be, you know, heated in the winter and expect electricity and expect, you know, things to work because it's worked their whole life. You know, people don't expect to go back to the 1800s just because, you know, some uh, rich oligarchs want to have, you know, this little SimCity experiment with green energy. And so uh, it, it's going to be kind of bad. And, uh, you know, it, my, my job here, I have clients, I'm supposed to make my clients a lot of money. Uh, I don't really get too deep into the politics at all, but sometimes, when, you know, you just know people are going to suffer. It kind of, kind of, kind of grabs it in a way. Yeah, it really does. It. And it's, it's really disappointing to me. And like one thing I've been trying to highlight, uh, I, I, so to get some context of my crusade against ESG, uh, I know you're not too big into Bitcoin, um, but for myself, I work at a Bitcoin mining company, uh, and Bitcoin mining is historically has been derided as this huge energy consumer that's boiling the oceans and uh, isn't ESG <laughs> friendly. And there's been a trend in in the Bitcoin mining industry uh, to attempt to appease the ESG movement. When I and I just think that is. Uh, a terrible strategic play for the industry because nothing will ever be good enough for these people. They're virtue signaling, and, and I don't think they actually care about uh, the environment, uh, social uh, equity, or governance at the end of the no, day. No, they think... hate people. Uh-oh, lost you again. Might need to cut your video. Copy is in Puerto Rico where they've been having power outages all day. There we go. Can you hear me? I mean, they truly hate you know there we got the robot voice uh-oh all right am i back you are back you are back all right sorry all right. you have to edit edit 20 seconds out sorry no it's fine. um they truly hate people yeah, these guys, they truly hate people. Look, uh, I'm a successful hedge fund manager. You know, so what? My gasoline is going to cost $10 a gallon and my utility bills will be a few thousand dollars next year or whatever it is they're going to try to do because I use carbon. I'll, I'll suffer through it. But, you know, middle class guys, you know, it's going to really take a bite out of them. And then you start going to, you know, emerging markets. Look, you have 6 billion people that want to have the same standard of living that the billion of us currently have. 
And I, I think it's wrong to deny these people that same standard of living. I mean, it's basically racist and uh, just, you know, evil. And I mean, I think a lot. I hate people. They don't want to allow uh, developing countries to pull themselves out of poverty. Like I said, I think it's about control. So I think they're losing control of the financial system and they're, they're using people's fears, Malthusian fear spells, if you will. They are using Malthusian fear spells on the populace, using climate, uh, race, uh, social equity, and all that stuff, and simply triggers to divide people and force them into uh, these stupid decisions. And the environmental part of the ESG, particularly pushing people towards unreliable uh, quote-unquote renewables and green technologies. I would argue they're not even green, they're not even renewable. The words green and renewable are <laughs> simply uh, dumb uh, rhetorical tricks to, to make people think like they're doing good things. Uh, the trade-offs of these quote-unquote renewable and green technologies are never discussed. They always point to the end product, the solar panel uh, producing electricity, the wind turbine producing electricity, but they never talk about the, the slavery used on the front end of those uh, supply chains, the amount of coal used on the front end of those supply chains, and the amount of coal used on the back end of the supply chains when you, when you need to uh, actually go recycle these things. And on top of that, uh, if we're going to have an energy well, transition, go ahead. Well, the tech doesn't really work. I mean, we put solar panels on my roof here because electricity is expensive. I did some math. I thought it'd be a couple year payback. You know, it wasn't you know as good as investing in my hedge fund, but you know, it looked like it would be about a ten year payback. And I said, let's go do it because I'll have electricity at least during the hurricane. You know, and the honest truth is that we're supposed to be getting forty four hundred watts, and it's cloudy in Puerto Rico, and we're never getting forty four hundred watts. Even on the sunniest days, we're in the threes. Um, you know, the things, you know, there's always a little bit of a shadow. They don't swivel with the sun. They're always a little bit dusty. But, you know, in the afternoon, it rains here pretty much every day. And in the afternoon, I'm using electricity from the grid. In the afternoon, that's when it's hot. And that's when I want the air conditioner. It, it, it's kind of crazy, but we're getting way less than what we ever expected we'd be getting off this equipment. I think yeah. um, a lot of people are learning that this green technology just doesn't really work like you think it's going to work. Well, does it work? Right. And then, and which is mind blowing too. And so there's another thing too, with this green movement, like if you're going to be green, uh, nuclear, if you're worried about carbon emissions and I, and Cuppy, I just want to be upfront with you. I'm not worried about them. I don't think there's a climate crisis. I'm, I'm not worried. I'm sure you living on an Island in Puerto Rico aren't as worried as many people either. Uh, I'm, I'm not particularly worried. I, the, the, the worst case scenario that they're all trying to scare us about is that over the next hundred years, it'll get two degrees hotter. I mean, two degrees hotter is totally irrelevant to anyone's life at all. And if you look at you know history of Earth, the Earth temperature swings quite wildly from extremes. Uh, no one really knows why. Uh, people have theories, but it swings around. I mean, they have ice core data that shows it's all over the place. And so I'm not really that worried about two degrees. But I think it's horrible to go to some third world country and tell a bunch of people they can't have cheap electricity because a bunch of rich guys are worried about two degrees. The whole thing makes no sense. And that's assuming all the climate models are right. And I'd say climatologists are about as predictable as you know, equity analysts. <laughs> I mean, I mean, how often does uh, your weather guy get it right? I mean, 
they're only bad about 50%. And here you have these really detailed models that go 100 years forward and with shitty inputs. And no, I mean, I'm, I'm super skeptical. I'm not going to say I don't believe in carbon. I'm just super skeptical. I'm extremely skeptical as well. And, and especially like the energy transition, like if they were going to really move to an energy transition and they're worried about carbon, they, they'd go to nuclear, which has no carbon output. Um, Right. If this was about green energy and providing cheap, affordable green energy to the world, we wouldn't be building solar panels. I mean, look, look at solar panels. Have you ever been to a solar panel farm? Like, it's just acre upon acre of trees they chop down to put these stupid panels up. They often put them in the desert because that's where you have the most sun. I mean, it's just disgusting looking. You have natural habitats that are being destroyed. It's using a ton of resources. And, you know, it's, it's unclear if the energy expended is even being recovered you know, in terms of the energy expended to build this stuff. If you really wanted cheap, reliable energy, you'd have massive amounts of nuclear, you'd have a bit of hydro, and then you'd kind of augment it with a little bit of wind. You know, I, I think that's the direction the world's gonna go. But like most things humans do, we try every other option before going to logical one. Yeah, and logic doesn't seem to exist very much these days. And so let's jump into your, your thesis that the ESG movement and uh, essentially the decisions that have been made in the name of the ESG movement, mainly that of a transition to unreliable energy sources uh, and replacing base load on the grid with these sources and uh, decommissioning reliable base load sources. Uh, how can this lead to a, to a layman moment? I mean, um, it seems like Lehman uh, it doesn't seem like Lehman had to do with credit risk and, and leverage and, and uh, exposure to financial markets. How how could uh, an energy sector lead lead to a Lehman-like moment? So the thing with Lehman really was that every day you showed up in the office and you know the spoos were down a few handles and. You know, there was more bad news and eventually it just gets this cathartic, like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know if my prime broker is going to be around tomorrow because, you know, you have these firms, they're just dropping all over the place. And I have friends working at these firms who they'll call me up and say, don't worry about it. I talked to the risk guy and then he's fired the next morning. You know, it's just like no one knew what would happen next. I mean, look at what's happening in the UK right now. No one knows uh, which firms will be open because no one knows if they can get power. I mean, ignore the like, price of power. Like, just will there be power tomorrow? Will, you know, anything work? How do you run businesses with no predictability about your, your core inputs? You know, how do you run businesses? I was just looking today. Uh, Glencore back the UK gas supplier CNG group is basically defaulting on all their clients. They're not providing electricity they had contracted. Well, if you now are a client and you have uh, hedges in place, basically with these guys, you have offtake agreements, and suddenly you're informed that you're going to have to go into the market. Well, everything you've done is undone. You're going to be paying a much higher price. You probably haven't hedged. You thought, you know, a Glencore-backed group that was providing uh, gas to utilities was, was, you know, a clean counterparty. Well, no. They, they've defaulted on uh, the delivery contracts. And then, you know, that forces someone else to default, which forces someone else to default. And this all ripples through because it wrecks everyone's balance sheet and people start going bankrupt. We saw two UK electricity suppliers go bankrupt today. Hundreds of thousands of customers. Like, you know, what are these customers going to do now? No one wants to take on the customers because they'll go bankrupt. So, you know, you can see how these things really ripple through and it's the same sort of thing. I think this is not going to just happen with electricity and gasoline and diesel. 
but it's going to eventually happen with food. It's going to happen with anything where government gets in the way of the efficient market, mm -hmm. the free market, and makes it impossible for business people to predict any of their costs or any of their, you know, exports or anything. I think it's just going to be a giant mess and it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. You know, um, I think it's we're just starting right now. Yeah. It's scary. The government, central banks, they're fucking up the money, they're fucking up the energy, and they're working hard to fuck up the food supply as well. Uh, well, I mean, they're also restricting the labor supply. First, they gave everyone stimmies to stay home, and now they said that a third of the you know, employees are unvaccinated, you have to fire them. Like, how do you run a business when you fire a third of your people? And, you know, I haven't seen good data on this, so this is, I'm just going to go on a hunch here, but um, I would guess that... Um, well, it's a third of the people across the country, I'm going to guess the guys working at Facebook and Google are, you know, almost 100% vaxxed. I'm going to guess that the guys working in the resource extraction sector are very low uh, percentage uh, vaccinated. Now, I talked to a friend of mine in the uh, oil services industry. He said uh, less than 15% of his field workers are vaxxed. Well, what happens when all these people have to quit? Like, you don't have enough people left to even operate the pipelines. Like, th this could go really bad fast. And, of course, the guys in D.C. don't understand how cause and effect works do they actually it's funny biden's biden's out there complaining to u.s energy stock uh, companies today saying that uh they need to produce more energy and they need to stop gouging consumers and he forgets he's the one who shut the pipelines <laughs> shut the pipelines he stopped new mineral leases on federal land uh like at what point do the american people particularly need to exert some civil disobedience and say, hey, we're going to be the adults in the room here. We're not going to listen to you because if we do, we're literally going to run this economy off a cliff. Well, it's already falling off a cliff, but the water is going to recede under us and we're going to fall on the hard rocks. We're not going to have a, a water landing uh, to die in. It's going to be a, a very gruesome landing. What I've learned, and I'm you know, not that old, but I've studied a lot of history, is that really stupid things usually have a, a, a wave to them where they get a lot worse than you ever think are possible. And then it gets so bad that people all of a sudden kind of as a group say, fuck this. And then it swings violently the other direction. And, you know, people have to relearn the same lessons, you know, every generation or two. But I think you have a mass, uh, you know, hysteria right now. And it's going to swing in the other direction as people eventually reap the rewards of their stupidity. And, you know, it's probably going to go a bit further, which is, you know, why, you know, my portfolio is positioned the way it is. But I expect people to really screw this thing up. And then eventually adults will step in and fix it or try to fix it. Yeah. I wish we didn't have to go down the path of uh, calamity, but it seems like people are dead set on it. I'm like at the point where... Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm st I, I quoted the Declaration of Independence in the newsletter the other day where the, we have the right, not only the right, but uh, the inalienable right to alter and abolish our government when, when, it does not, uh, when it does not serve the people anymore. This government is not serving us in any way, shape, or form. It's a bunch of 70, 80-year-olds who have no idea what's going on. And that, that's the thing. That's the sad thing for me as a 30-year-old millennial, got a 19-month-old son, I'm like completely blackpilled about all this. I think I'm like, these people are trying to do a controlled demolition so they can push us into a, a Chinese social credit scoring system that they, that they wish they could bring here. I mean, they've talked about negative interest rates, banning cash, all they're talking about CBDCs. 
part of me wants doesn't I don't want to believe it, but part of me can't help but think that there's some nefarious intention behind all this. Oh, of course there is. I mean, if you crash the system, you get to control the pieces. Uh, of course, they want to crash the system. Um, I think I think that's you know the, the obvious direction we're going to go. Uh, you know, it's just a question of when people stand up for their rights and you know what what form that takes. You know, I hope it's peaceful. Uh, it might not be. You know, one of my core themes is that you know some places will muddle through unscathed they'll be self-reliant and some places will be giant clusterfucks and there'll be a lot of in between and you know i just hope you know everyone can come out of this thing safely i do too that's why i focus on bitcoin no you're not in bitcoin we get to bitcoin later but how are you positioning for this esg lehman moment well the great thing about commodities and i've done a lot of commodities in my life is that supply and demand is all that matters and governments from time to time will interfere in either one of those, uh, you know, legs, supply or demand, and they'll artificially, you know, repress one of them. And it always just means that the move, uh, when they get out of the way, is stronger. Um, if the government's going to make it really, really hard to produce uh, resources, then the price of resources should go up. If the government's going to stimulate the economy, and drive the demand for resources higher while simultaneously uh, restricting the ability to produce resources, you can have resource prices go crazy. And so it doesn't take a lot of foresight to realize that uh, the, the places where they're interfering the most are probably gonna do it fast. Um, we have a lot of exposure to energy. That's the one uh, place that they're just fixated, you know? Um, you know, I'm expressing this exposure, I think, very differently from a lot of other people. I don't own the producers. Uh, in my experience, you know, you look at like oil and gas, like it's not a very good business. It's very cyclical. It's very capital intensive. You have geology risk, you have operating risk, you have MA risk and corporate governance risk. These are all risks I don't really want to take, nor am I a specialist. So I, I know how to take them very intelligently. Um, I just know that the price is going to go higher. And so I'm expressing this just through the futures and the futures uh, options. Um, you know, I went out, the great thing about futures, they go out uh, long in time. So I have a lot of time for this to play out. I have the 23s and the 25s uh, in oil. I just believe the price of oil would be much higher because they will keep stimulating demand. Uh, it's an international commodity. So even if they don't stimulate too much here, you know that they're going to stimulate in India and China and all around the rest of the world. The six billion people want the stuff I have. And, um, you know, I think global usage will continue to grow. I think the supply will be uh, restricted. I think that the clearing price will dramatically have to overshoot to uh, solve the problem. That, that's how I'm playing it. Uh, you know, I've already made some good money on this. I think I'm going to make a lot more. Uh, the great thing about futures is you're allowed to use leverage. Well, I haven't levered them too much. But with futures call options, you know, you can go out to December uh, 25 and you can buy the 100 strike, which I chose that just randomly. Uh, I mean, it's trading in the mid threes right now, you know, and I don't know how high oil is going to go, but that might not pay off. You know, I, I might lose all my money. You know, I might pay off 10 times. I might pay off 100 times. And, you know, I, I got a feeling I'm going to get paid something at least. Um, and I, I just like that sort of trade. Uh, you know, the other way I'm playing this, I own the largest offshore drilling company uh, in the world called Valeris. Uh, it came out of bankruptcy with a clean balance sheet, more cash than debt. 
came out of bankruptcy with some contracts in hand. It's continued to add to its uh, backlog of contracts. I bought a bunch of uh, uh, very specialized equipment that they're not producing any more of right now. Uh, I bought that equipment at about 10 cents in the dollar of what it's worth. It's trading about 15 cents in the dollar right now. Uh, I think the demand for uh, drilling offshore increases dramatically because if they're not going to let you produce oil in the U.S., and the Canadians won't let you export your oil because you're not getting a pipeline. Um, and you start going around the rest of the globe and everyone's restricting oil production. Well, the oil has to come from somewhere. It's probably going to come from places where they, they can't do ESG because they need the money. You know, what else does Guyana have? You know, what do you think Angola is really going to do? These places are going to open up huge blocks of land and say, come drill. Uh, they need the dollars, they need the oil, the, the, the corrupt guys there like to steal the stuff. And uh, guys like Valeris, I think, are going to see all their vessels uh, fully utilized. And I think they're going to make a lot of money. You know, the, la the top of the last cycle, these things traded at two times replacement costs. Uh, you know, that's a 20 bagger for me. And you know, the, the important thing for me is I don't feel like I'm taking much risk because I got a clean balance sheet and it's cash flow positive today. Uh, you know, I, I do what I call inflection investing, which means I like to catch the inflection in a sector. I don't like taking risk, though. I really, I make concentrated bets. I don't like risk. So when I find someone without a lot of risk, and I think it's got, you know, multi-multi-bagger upside, I play it big. And that's how I'm playing oil. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Ooh, got that echo. Am I still echoing? Yeah, I'm here. I'm echoing. Can you, oh, we're good now. I'm good now. Not echoing anymore, but that like makes a lot of sense. Very cogent explanation. I uh, would tend to agree. Somebody who via the the Bitcoin mining industry is very close to oil. It seems like that is uh, the where the price of these commodities are going. And obviously, you have insane people in charge who are forcing the issue, which is surprising. Like, so I, I guess this is a Bitcoin podcast. Like, how do you not view Bitcoin as an inflection trade or have you surveyed it as a potential inflection trade and decided it isn't? So, you know, I own Bitcoin. I bought it last uh, year. Uh, I bought it when I noticed a kind of obscure entity called Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that was every day issuing shares and buying Bitcoins. And I did some, you know, quick calculations and realized that they, if they kept going at the pace they were going, they'd own all the Bitcoins. And clearly they're not going to own all the Bitcoins. So the price had to go higher to adjust for that fact. And I bought into Grayscale when Bitcoin was trading about 9,200. Uh, I sold out uh, this spring when Bitcoin got to 58,000. So, you know, six times more money. Um, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm not against Bitcoin by any means. I think it actually goes higher. Um, I, I just think there's better things to do with my capital. And, you know, in my experience, when you have an asset that uh, when I sold out, it was over a trillion dollars market cap. When you have a trillion dollar asset, the odds that's going to go up another five, 10 times. Now, there, it could happen, but you know, I think there's a lot of things that are a billion dollar assets that can go up 20 times. And I, I just, you know, my capital is very dear to me. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, I had a hedge fund, I get, I get paid to produce results. And I'd rather go somewhere where I think I could produce better results. Um, you know, and that, that, that's resources. I do think Bitcoin probably goes higher, though. That makes a lot of sense. I'm trying to be risk averse. I also think, you know, with Bitcoin, look, if you look at the wave cycles, it tends to, you know, have a couple year up, up phase and a consolidation phase and an up phase. I think we're kind of in a consolidation phase. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the next few years I'm back long again. Yeah. What do you think about Bitcoin just as an asset, as a technology? And do you think it could be a viable currency, a viable monetary good? I mean, 
and I'm, I'm going to go very quickly outside my circle of competence here and probably say something that I'm going to regret or embarrass <laughs> myself with. But, you know, Bitcoin has clear flaws as being, you know, the first blockchain digital currency. You know, the technology has advanced a lot. Of course, you know, you know, one layer up, they've one or two layers up, they've built a lot of extra technology on top that makes it a lot more versatile. It really comes down to what they continue to develop in you know second third layer technology and how they make it better and what bugs they find as they start doing that um you know clearly bitcoin has some certain limitations in terms of you know cost to transact and whatnot uh then it's just going to come down to if they can solve those issues or if one of the other projects that is rapidly you know trying to gain market share can solve some of these problems faster and get uh, get adoption you know, I keep telling people I'm not convinced. You know, I think we're going to be on a blockchain world, you know, in the future for uh, monetary transactions. I'm just not even sure if the thing I'm using 10 years from now has been invented yet. And so I, I just don't really know. I know that's, you know, kind of a roundabout uh, answer, but I just don't really know. I like to have an open mind about these things. No, it's completely fair. It's completely fair. Um, and it is a, a common sort of uh, explanation for why people are, are more risk averse towards Bitcoin, I would argue. I don't want to get too deep into the Bitcoin weeds, but I argue Bitcoin is dumb, slow, and relatively um, uh, boring at the protocol level for very important reasons. The most important being that if it is to succeed, it needs to remain sufficiently distributed in the long run. Uh, and it does that by being dumb, slow, uh, and boring at the protocol layer. Uh, and you got to be the protocol layers. Yeah. There. A settlement layer um, where you're not going to have everyday transactions like you mentioned that'll be pushed up to second and third layers and it, it really comes down to what they can build on top of that and how the technology advances i mean bitcoin has quite a lot of money being spent on those next layers so they probably will be able to fix the issues yeah, a lot of sparse people are working on that but well, that's who's to say you know that's actually the funny thing about it is there's been uh magnitudes of order more money thrown at other protocols compared to Bitcoin and Bitcoin is actually building better, more reliable second and third layer tech. Um, I can't imagine what's going to happen when uh, people stop chasing the next Bitcoin and actually start investing in, in the, uh, the layered stack uh, of Bitcoin. Um, it's only going to get better, but we don't have to get too deep into the Bitcoin weeds. I wanted to also talk about uh, a blog post that you dropped on Monday um, basically talking about risk parity trades and, and, and uh, 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 the possibility that, that we're running into a bit of a complacency in the markets with the, the typical equity bond 60-40 portfolio, uh, having too many people uh, basically going along with that trade, thinking it's going to be nothing but roses moving forward. What, what risk are you seeing with that specific trade? So when a trade is worked for 40 years, a lot of people start putting it on. Sometimes they don't even know they're putting it on. They put on one leg of it or they, everyone, you know, I like to say everyone makes their sausage a little different, but it's all sausage. And, um, you know, when it works, you start levering it up too. And, you know, when you look, take a step back, the reason the, the 60, 40 portfolios work, we just buy large cap US tech or just large cap US equity indexes and 30 year bonds it, it is because uh, we've had 40 straight years of interest rates declining. And so if we are at an inflection in rates, and I think we are, um, something that's worked for 40 years should go the other direction and start you know, not working for some period of time. And uh, when you have a lot of leverage in a system, 
and the, the strategy stops working, at some point, someone gets on the ropes, they get a margin call and they start selling. And, you know, it, it trips the next guy down the line into a selling situation as well. And pretty soon everyone's selling. And, you know, we saw this in uh, March of uh, 2020, where a lot of guys got on the ropes and suddenly, you know, equities and bonds dropped at the same time, which has just never happened in my career. And, you know, I, I think um, the next time down, the Fed's not going to be there to save these guys because the Fed is it's a political animal. Okay. I mean, everyone's been talking for the better part of my career. Don't worry, the Fed's got your back. I mean, what if the Fed is not on your team anymore? What if the Fed's, you know, against you? I mean, everyone in DC seems to be against me as an investor. I mean, why would the Fed be on my team? You know, what's to say that, you know, the guys in Congress don't lean on the Fed and say, you know, the price of oil is up, the price of you know, tomatoes are up, you know, do something. And you know, that the Fed in their do something moment, the only thing they know how to do is raise interest rates or QT. They don't really have a lot of tools in their toolbox there. I mean, they don't control energy policy. You know, energy is what's going to drive all the inflation. And so as a result, them doing something is likely just going to make risk parity blow up worse. And not, I think you have a lot of headwinds against you right now as an equity investor in the, in the broader market. Uh, for the first time, really, in a very long time. Yeah, things are precarious, right? Like, and But you said the Fed can't step in and fix the energy markets, but they've been tasked with fixing racism. And New York Fed's going to fix the the inequity in, in, the <laughs> in our country if they can fix that they can fix they, anything yeah they'll, they'll, they'll give it all a shot i'm sure they will um but no <laughs> talking about uh mandate drift um but no i think it's going to be a mess look uh, government central planners always screw everything up and when you give them you know conflicting goals and tell them that they you know good job guys and they're just gonna you know, try to solve a bunch of things simultaneously that are mutually exclusive. It's just going to make everything worse. I mean, my, my, my general view is government makes everything worse. And uh, I assume the Fed will make everything worse. Um, you know, I, I guess my thing is, you know, I don't short very much because the most you can make is 100%. Um, you know, I, I really focus my energy on what sort of thing can go five or 10 times or 20 times. And increasing, you know, when I first started in this industry, I looked at small little companies that are growing fast because that was the easiest way to make money. Now, I was willing to work harder than anyone else. And so uh, I discovered these little 20, 30, $50 million companies that became big companies. And uh, I made a lot of money as a kid in college. Uh, and then um, you know, now I spend most of my time just looking at government fuck ups and figuring out what you know, happens as a you know, end result six months later. And you know, as the government screws something up, I'm just going to get in the way of what they're screwing up. Uh, you know, I did this with energy, made a lot of money. I did this, you know, with the COVID overreaction. I, I, no matter where you go, I'm just basically watching governments make unforced errors and then, you know, making money out of it. <laughs> it, it it's almost easier because, you know, you can just count on government to always screw up and you can count on government to always make things worse. It's, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the markets have become very easy all of a sudden, whereas it used to really be a hustle to make money out of it. Yeah, no, that seems like an incredible investing strategy. Just bank on the government fucking things up. Oh, I'm, angry. <laughs> I'm angry these days, Kyle, because I'm looking at everything going on. And it's like these are very fixable problems. You just don't have the will to do it. That's why I think civil disobedience be... arise. Yeah, that, that'll happen eventually. And, you know, a lot of people will, you know, 
give the middle finger in their own funny ways. Um, but like I said, you know, my, my, my task here is just to make some money for my clients. And, um, you know, I, I can't solve the world's problems. I'm just some guy. Um, I could write some articles about it and maybe influence a little bit of opinion in a small little circle of people that agree with me. Like, <laughs> I don't know what that, that's going to accomplish. So instead, I'm going to focus on um, just making money for my clients. Now, I think the big trade right now, and I want to talk about uranium, is um, one of the potentially few opportunities where the government doesn't screw it all up. Uh, and I, I know that's a ballsy statement, but um, I see a unique moment here where all these people are going to realize that energy security is important. A lot of countries have almost no natural resources, and they're going to have a panic moment where they can't go backward because they've already told their voters that carbon's evil. And they can't go forward because the wind doesn't blow sometimes. And so they're going to have to find this weird compromise, and I think the compromise will be nuclear. And I think you're going to see a lot of uh, nuclear power plants built. I think you're going to see a lot of power plants that were supposed to be shut down in the next 10 years that will get extended. I think you're going to see a lot of power plants that were shut get restarted. I think uh, demand for uranium is going to go up dramatically at a time when uh, uranium supply is uh, very low. You know, right now there's a deficit and every day that goes by, uh, uranium that's above ground sitting in warehouses gets consumed by utilities. Um, Governments being governments are going to get in the way of uh, these uranium mines restarting. They're going to get in the way of mills uh, getting permits and giving out permits to new mines. They're going to do exactly what I uh, talked about a few minutes ago. They're going to artificially restrict the supply of something while subsidizing guys to consume it. You know, they're going to find ways to allow, you know, basically, we just saw this happen in Illinois where. The state of Illinois just gave a multi-billion dollar subsidy to two uh, nuclear yeah. power plants to stay open. Yeah. You know, they're going to subsidize these guys to consume uranium. At the same time, they're going to make it impossible to mine uranium. <laughs> so what do you think is going to happen to the price of uranium? You know, this, this is like, you know, middle school economics. It's, it's going to go crazy. Um, and it's already starting to go crazy. When I first bought my uranium, uh, it was at 30. And I... Uh, in Ireland, bought it about two months ago, and today we're at 50, and I think it's just starting. You know, like I said before, I'm an inflection investor, so a lot of these things are self-obvious to me and probably a lot of other investors. I know people have been talking about uranium for five years. The difference is you need a catalyst to uh, make uranium start going up and make people notice. And uh, that catalyst to me was uh, an entity in Canada that uh, launched uh, – ETF, I guess, or closed-end fund, or trust, whatever they call themselves, to uh, acquire uranium. They're going to issue shares. They're going to buy uranium. And uh, they're going out there like crazy buying uranium every month. And um, at the rate they're going, they're going to actually buy more uranium than the world produces uh, in a year. And you, know, <laughs> you, you can almost, almost guess what's going to happen to the price of uranium because you have a bunch of utilities that also need the same uranium that a bunch of speculators are buying. So, you know, I think that's right now, if I had to say one thing to put your you know, brain energy into as an investor would be uranium. Because like I said, governments are suddenly coming around to it. You know, on, on, on Tuesday, we saw uh, you know, the Finland Green Party. Like, who the hell are these people, you know? But it's a green party that suddenly decided that uranium is now a green energy source, you know? And so that means that, you know, some other you know, green party in Europe is going to come on to uranium and someone else. And then suddenly they're going to have a conclave and they'll all... 
all fly their private jets to the conclave somewhere and uh, decide, you know, together that's green energy. And then, you know, they're going to have subsidies to produce more of the uh, more of this green energy. But where's the uranium going to come from? Because we know the government will get in the way of the mines. So I don't know. I, I, I'm rambling here, but I'm I love kind this of been as excited about some. I've been as excited about something really since uh, I was about what was happening with Bitcoin when it was at nine thousand. Grayscale was buying it all. You know, I think the same thing's happened with Sprott here. You know, they issued uh, $78 million yesterday. Uh, you know, that's over a million pounds of uranium they're going to buy. They probably issued about 50 million more pounds today. 50 million more dollars today. It's another million pounds. The world increases 125 million pounds this fall. So if they're going to go out there and start buying about 1% of the production every day, I mean, it's inevitable the price goes up. So anyway, yeah. that, that, that's what I put a lot of my energy into. It's my basic, biggest exposure. It's basically betting on government stupidity with also the government coming to the rescue to solve their own dumb problem. No, nah, I mean, uranium trade has uh, been a big one in, in sub, subculture, uh, trading subculture for, for about the last year, at least, that I've, I've, uh, I've been observing. I've had a lot of friends who like, buy uranium, dude, buy uranium. Uh, I did pretty well at the UUUU ETF as well um, for a bit there. So I should probably keep riding that. Uh, but it does make sense. Yeah, it is middle school supply and demand. The governments will fuck it up. You know what? If it ends, pretty much. If it ends with more uh, with more nuclear reactors, I'll be happy. And I'm pro-nuclear. Uh, I think it's uh, very important for the future. Um, yeah, everyone should be. I mean, look at what we just saw. The new Japanese prime minister, he got in there like a week ago. He said, why are we paying over 20 for LNG when we can just turn on our existing reactors? You know, like the government come to the rescue. Um, you know, we, we saw that in France. Uh, France this week said mm -hmm. they were supposed to shut a bunch of reactors. And France instead just said, uh, hey, let's keep these reactors on and build some new ones. Um, you know, I assume the Germans are probably going to, try everything possible and then come to the same conclusion about their own reactors. Um, and so, no, I think you're going to have everyone come around to uranium uh, nuclear at the same time. And then they're all going to about a year from now go, Oh shit, where does uranium come from? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's funny that they're all saving face now. Macron um, saying they're going to spin up. Uh, you had the Illinois, Reactor saved, as you mentioned, that was very like a year ago. That was almost certainly going to be shut down. And then even today, I believe it was earlier today, you had Larry Fink come out and say that uh, I think companies are, are going too quickly into the ESG movement that I started. So yeah, I think even Larry Fink <laughs> is beginning to uh, to realize the monster he's created and the, the shit show that he's about to unleash on the world as uh, the energy markets go fucking crazy. The grids go down. People are going to be hungry and cold this winter. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see what the social backlash is when that happens. Yeah, and I hope they remember that Larry Fink is the reason that they're uh, cold and that, you know, their food is too expensive and their life sucks. <laughs> yeah, what, I mean, what are your thoughts on Larry? I mean, he's got the ESG movement. He's buying up a bunch of single single home, uh, excuse me, single family real estate driving up prices of real estate markets. A lot of people are speculating. Uh, he's got uh, the ability to control a bunch of boardrooms due to the fact that, that his, uh, his asset management company is, is able to buy up significant shares in any company they want. Is he a good actor? Is he good for markets? Is he bad for markets? 
Well, I mean, I think regulation, you know, if you look at you know, the 33 Act, the 40 Act, I mean, they, they were designed to regulate people like Larry Fink, you know, Sherman Antitrust, all this stuff. It was designed to ensure that one person who's basically a nominee director of every company in the world uh, can't just rule the world. Um, it, it, I don't know. He, I give him credit. He cheated the system and he's going to mm -hmm. go around creating crisis and then will somehow make money by, you know, the prices he creates. It's, it's, it's brilliant capitalism. It's just evil. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, don't hate the player, hate the game, hate the system. Again, copy. This is why we Bitcoin. I think that you need to fix the money to fix the world. I think all of these negative externalities that stem from government, uh, ignorance and central bank, uh, incompetence, uh, can be, be helped if we fix the money if we wrest control of money from the idiots in control of it now you cannot granularly oh, i'm not sure if we complex if we systems were buying public if we bought public companies using bitcoins instead of dollars you'd still have larry fink or a different larry fink who would somehow you know maneuver himself into a position to control the system i mean Human nature is human nature. It's been going on for thousands of years. I mean, actually, I'm a Roman history major. I'm not even a business school guy. I, I just came out of uh, college and realized that no one paid Roman history majors or anything. Um, but this stuff's been going on for a very long time. Uh, and so, uh, no, this is just human nature. And people rise up, and then eventually they fly too close to the sun, they crash. And I think Larry Fink is suddenly realizing that if people are cold, you know, he might be hung up with meat hooks. I think he suddenly realized that he's taking it a little too far. He's got to back off a little or find someone else to be the scapegoat. Yeah. I would agree with that. I agree. He definitely sees the writing on the wall and doesn't want to be pinpointed as uh, the asshole made it happen, though he certainly will be. Back to Bitcoin in the money. Maybe. You can't manipulate interest rates and print monetary units out of thin air you can't misallocate capital as terribly as it's been misallocated over the last um, at least 15 years potentially the last 50 years yeah i i would just think that you change the medium of exchange and you find a new way to screw it up it's just human nature okay. uh, but if you reset the system it usually cleans the system for a while and then they screw it up again no. um you know, I, I think a good reset of the system would be healthy for almost everyone but it might get messy along the way. Uh, it might be inevitable also. You know, it's one of the, you know, the core theses we have at our hedge fund is that the system is in the reset process. And you, know, you really need robust businesses that can survive uh, all sorts of stupidity of multiple layers. And so you know, the things we own you know, are strong companies, or you know, in, in many cases, we don't even own companies. We just own physical uranium, or we own you know, call options on oil. Because, you know, I know enough to know that the last thing that will uh, fail is going to be the futures exchange because all these rich guys need it themselves. You know, they'll find some way to prop that one up. <laughs> well, whereas, you know, some small oil company might have carbon taxes and you know, suffer. since so we don't own those sort of things. Yeah, carbon taxes. You, just print, you can just print carbon credits out of thin air. Sell them to people and tell them that they're actually helping the environment. Here. These credits... <laughs> Or proof that you're helping the environment. You're actually doing nothing. Well, the, the sooner 
the sooner you know oil goes to a few hundred and you know people are shivering in their homes the sooner you know they, they go and fix the problem so you know, in a way this is you know like the the cure you know the cure is going to hurt a little yeah yeah i need to feel some pain to to uh to react and make sure it doesn't happen again earlier you said right. earlier you said that there's there's going to be places that that muddle through and get by uh in places that that sort of uh feel the brunt of the chaotic calamity that, that may be on the horizon where where are you seeing that do you have specific places or are you just saying that's the way it will play out oh no i mean that's that's the way this stuff always plays out you know large cities usually are chaotic messes because everyone takes the streets and fights each other there and you know you're going to have places that are, you know, the tribal places where everyone agrees. And if you look at a map of the United States, you do the blue versus red on a county basis. Is a big chunk of the country that agrees. Is you know a bunch of little cities that also agree. And um, you know the, the places that are in full agreement on the situation aren't going to have much of a problem. Uh, you know, you're also going to have you know whole countries that just skate on through all this. I mean, I think Russia is going to do very well. They've got the best currency there is. They've got, you know, almost no external dollar debt. They've got, you know, plenty of gold. They've got you know, energy to export. They've internalized a lot of their economy over the last uh, couple of years due to uh, trade embargoes. They've become a lot more self-sufficient. They've become stronger. You know, I think, uh, you know, Putin, you know, like him or dislike him, he's a guy that actually thinks ahead a few years, unlike most politicians. I think they're going to do quite well in this sort of situation. You know, I, I can see other places that are complete disasters. Um, you know, and I think there's going to be a lot of in between. Um, you know, and I, I think you need to look deeply at what you own and say, are you going to be, you know, if this goes bad, which in human nature, things usually go bad, um, you're going to be in the crossfire of this all, you know, yourself personally, and then also the assets you have. Yeah. Yeah. I'm worried about my family in the Northeast. <laughs> so I, I moved to Texas because I, I agree with you. I think shit's going to get get pretty hairy. I moved. I think Texas, you know, once again, will be a microcosm of the rest of the U.S. You know, you have a couple of blue cities, but they're probably ha super happy being blue. And you have a big red everything else in Texas. And, you know, the, the clashes will be on the fringes of those two areas if there are clashes. Uh, you know, but Texas has a lot of self-sufficiency, and it seems right now the guys running it are level-headed enough. Um, yeah. And I could see other places yeah. that are just complete disasters. And like I said, there's everything else in between. You know, I, I live in Puerto Rico. It's a rather blue sort of place. Um, but, you know, it seems to muddle through all crises. And, you know, having, you know, just come out of the, the Hurricane Maria crisis, they've hardened a lot of systems, they've made things better. You know, I don't have to worry about it being cold, it's always hot here. You know, there's plenty of bananas that just grow by the side of the road, you literally stop, I'm not gonna starve to death. I might eat bananas every meal, but I'm not gonna starve. But I can go to the beach and go fishing. Like, I think I'm gonna muddle through this one just fine. Um, I don't think it's gonna get that bad here anyway. I don't see anyone out there protesting or angry here. Everyone seems to be happy, have it good. and. You know, I don't know they have it good. Um, so, yeah, I think there's some places that are just going to be terrible, though. I mean, whatever. 
I don't want to get too deep into politics. I'm just going to offend everyone. Um, all I could do is, you know, figure out where the puck's going and how to make money out of it. And there's an energy crisis. It's going to get worse. Um, I think the solution and savior is going to end up being uh, uranium. Uh, but that all takes time to play out. And I think there's a lot of assets I don't really want to own. I guess the final thing I'd say, though, is that if they're going to print a ton of money, which they will, I think most assets go up. Some just go up faster than others. And I'd, I'd warn people very strongly to uh, stay away from shorting. Uh, there'll be a lot of volatility. There'll be moments in time where you can make a lot of money as a short seller. But most people aren't skilled at timing those. I know I'm not. Um, I think the money will really be made by being long the things that go up faster. And, you know, I always tell the story, but I went to Zimbabwe uh, and I went there the day the national airline went out of business. I went there, the stock exchange on a day where the stock exchange, the power went out and I saw them trading in the dark and it was just uh, a U-shaped table with about 10 guys there and they were trading some stocks. They weren't trading a lot of stock, but the stock market tripled that day, even though they're trading in the dark. Uh, it was just only buy orders. There was almost no sell orders. Um, and that's what happens. You print a lot of money. It has to go somewhere. And it went into worthless Zimbabwean stocks. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I would just be very careful on uh, being sure. And I think a lot of people have made the mistake of looking at what's happening and saying it's going to be messy for the economy. And, you know, what we've learned in Zimbabwe or Venezuela or any other country that has a mess, the stock market sometimes goes up no matter what. Yeah. Well, Cuppy, this has been a very illuminating conversation. I really like your... I don't know what I call it, dry perspective on the world. It's clear cut, and very methodical. Just bet that the government's going to fuck things up and drive prices higher. And non emotional, I guess, would be a way to describe it. Is that how you would describe your? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm super frustrated. I mean, I'd love things to be going happy, uh, but I'm a realist, and I don't think they're going happy. I think it's going to get a lot worse, and um, you know. I wish I could go back to the early 2000s where I was buying small cap companies in exciting industries that are growing super fast and I was betting on things getting better, or at least things getting better at those companies. So now I'm mostly betting around the world that government's gonna screw stuff up. <laughs> it's, it's a funny, you know, kind of Darwinian way to look at the investment uh, landscape, but you know, I'm, I'm gonna play the hand that's helped me. And, um, I don't know. That's just w where my head is right now. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm also very uh, open to the possibility that things could get very better uh, rapidly. You know, I think humans, you know, they, they go crazy as a group. And what's the phrase saying that they, they lose their they lose their mind as a group and they only come to it one by one. Um, and I think gradually people are going to snap out of this and when enough of them do. It's going to swing violently the other way. And if you're caught uh, with the wrong hand, you're going to get, you know, swept out the sea again. And so, you know, the, the whole point is just to see where sentiment is and see where your positioning is and see where, you know, your themes are. You know, commodities, there's no, you know, commodities are very different than, let's call it, uh, you know, a company with earnings. You know, you can set a value on those earnings. And, you know, every day you're trading stocks, you're just betting on, you know, what you think the right multiple on those earnings are. When it comes to you know betting on the right price for oil, no one really has supply demand data that's very accurate. And you know, just because there's an imbalance doesn't mean that it can't swing wildly one direction or the other. And so you, know, you need to be a lot more aware of what's happening because it gets priced on the second or even the third derivative of 
of uh, very small you know, incremental changes. And so you really have to be paying attention to how it's all working. And you have to accept it to be very, very volatile. You think it's uh, you know, over-levered because you you'll get taken out of the game. But you also you know, want to have a full position until the, the story changes. And so it's a, it's a more difficult place to maneuver. I tend to sell too early. That's, that's my curse. But you know, I also know that when the, the cycle turns, especially in commodities, it's vicious and violent. And you, know, you got to be careful for that. So anyway, I would just tell people on a final note, just be careful being short and be careful getting over-levered also. Middle. I think that's very good advice. And I will be continue to be that Bitcoin thorn in your side. I think Bitcoin provides the optimism and uh, the the, <laughs> the environment where those those small, quick, quickly growing companies, fast growing companies uh, are going to emerge. But again, this has been an illuminating conversation. Thank you for this hour of your time. I think uh, the audience is going to get a lot of value out of this. I think you have a very unique perspective. I love your I love your blog. Um, and I think anybody uh, listening to this should go um, read it, adventuresincapitalism.com. Uh, I had to make sure it was a .com and not like a .io or something. Uh, you're putting out incredible content in a very funny, lighthearted way. And uh, I love that I'm on the front line of the, the anti-ESG movement with you because ESG is about control. They don't give a fuck about the environment or people. They care about control. Yeah, no, they want to... Yeah, it's, it's, it's like go down that rabbit hole again. But all I can do is look at where ESG fails and make money out of it. Uh, but in terms of my blog, you know, Adventures in Capitalism, please sign up for uh, updates. You know, when I have something to say, I send it. The great thing about having a free blog is that you get what you pay for. And, you know, if I have nothing to say, I just don't write anything that week. <laughs> so anyway, I, I recommend people sign up. We've caught a lot of these inflections in real time. And, you know, you can go back. I've been writing it for over a decade. You can see my track record. I think I've been pretty uh, on top of this stuff and pretty consistently coming up with winning ideas. Yeah, I mean, I'd say so. I think you're catching the CHG inflection point uh, at the exact right time. Cuppy, thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your night in Puerto Rico. And uh, hopefully we can do this again hey, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Uh, that's the nature of what we Yeah, it's all good. And, and, and that's a trade-off I'd be willing to make. Uh, technical difficulties for the life in Puerto Rico. Um, that's all we got this week, Freaks. Peace and love.